I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 24, the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Someone has said that when it comes to those things that have to do with the end of the world, the coming of Christ, the last judgment, the millennium, the great tribulation, the rapture, all of those events, we're going to try to mesh them together this morning, all of those events, when it comes to those events, there are only two things we can say for sure. Number one, he that shall come will come. That's from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. And then secondly, that Christ's second coming is now nearer than it was when we first believed. And that's from Romans chapter 13, verse 11. We, of course, can say a little bit more than that, although it's a very difficult subject to deal with. One despairing commentator studying through the book of Revelation, which deals the most with the second coming and the rapture, studying through the book of Revelation, said that there are as many riddles in the book of Revelation as there are words. Another despairing commentator said about the book of Revelation that a man either find, it either finds a man mad or leaves a man mad. The book of Revelation is a difficult book to understand. It's a difficult book to interpret. It well behooves us not to be too hard-headed about our interpretations of the book of Revelation because it is such a complex book. How complex is it? The great theologian, John Calvin, the father, if you will, of the Presbyterian Church, the great theologian, John Calvin, wrote 22 volumes of commentaries on all the books of the Bible except for the book of Revelation. In his biblical genius, he did not consider himself adequate to write a commentary on the book of Revelation. Now, some people have written commentaries on the book of Revelation. I wish they had seen themselves as not adequate to write those commentaries on the book of Revelation because they do so with a very prejudiced and very hard-headed mentality when it comes to the book. It is a very, very difficult book. But be that as it may, the study of last things, which is called eschatology, can be a spiritually profitable venture that will not only help us to persevere amidst the persecution that always comes to God's faithful, but also to prepare ourselves for what Paul calls the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, the great truth of the second coming is this. God has so inspired biblical prophecy that every generation... Every generation, every generation, even our generation, every generation may reasonably expect Christ's return in their lifetime. God has so ordered, He has so inspired biblical prophecy that every generation, including our own, may reasonably expect Christ to return in our lifetime. Last Sunday I began a short two-part mini-series on the second coming of Jesus Christ with a message called The Promise of Christ's Second Coming. This morning we move to the second message, the final message. I'm kind of glad that it's final message. I'm kind of glad that I only did two messages because I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. Doing this message today was kind of like dating when I was much, much younger. You started off on the date feeling one way, you ended up on the date feeling another way, okay? And that's kind of the way I've dealt with this book of Revelation, particularly the proximity of Christ's second coming. I started out feeling, this is what I believe about it. I ended up going, no, I guess this is what I believe about it, okay? It's a very difficult subject. And anybody that will tell you it's not a difficult subject has never studied it. It's that simple. 
It's a very difficult subject. So this morning we talk about the proximity of Christ's second coming, and by proximity I mean the nearness. How near is Christ's second coming? The nearness of His second coming. As every generation can, the early church certainly did expect Jesus to come back during their lifetimes. Last Sunday I shared with you that wonderful quotation from Alexander McLaren, the pastor of the Union Chapel in Manchester, England, who said the early church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death or about heaven. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were waiting not for the undertaker, but they were watching for the upper taker. Do we watch for the second coming of Jesus Christ with the same conviction, the same enthusiasm, and the same diligence? I hope the message today helps you to do just that. Now, it's important that we understand that we are not going to agree on every aspect of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Equally sound and spiritual minds have come up with different interpretations of such things as the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the thousand year millennium, the last judgment, and the end of the world. The question is really about how all of those things, those monumental events, mesh together. Matthew chapter 24 is called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus and His disciples had been in the temple in Jerusalem, and as they left that temple, they began to climb the adjacent Mount of Olives. And there at the Mount of Olives, Jesus' disciples asked Him some questions, and there's a discourse or a speech that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 that is to answer those questions. Watch with me, if you will, the beginning of that in the first three verses of Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when His disciples came up to Him to call His attention to its buildings. And its buildings were beautiful. I mean, the temple that we're talking about here is the temple that Herod the Great built. And it was a beautiful, beautiful structure. Do you see all these things, Jesus asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Notice that according to verse 3, Jesus, His disciples asked Him three questions. First of all, they asked, when will this happen? What were they talking about? They were talking about the destruction of the temple. When will this destruction of the temple happen? Do you realize that there had already been one destruction of the temple? In 597 B.C., the Babylonian army came in and destroyed the temple that Solomon built. So there had already been one destruction of the temple. They knew it had happened once. Maybe it was going to happen again. Jesus said it was going to happen again. The second question they have is, what will be the sign of your coming? Now, by His coming, are they talking about the rapture? Or are they talking about the second coming of Christ? And the answer to that is, probably so. Okay? Probably so. Yeah, they're probably talking about both in some way, somehow. And then thirdly, what about the end of the age? What about the end of the age? In Matthew chapter 24, sometimes it's hard to figure out which of those questions Jesus is answering. Because there are three different questions they asked. And they're a little bit unrelated. And that being the case, it's sometimes very difficult to figure out what question is Jesus talking about in any given moment of His discourse. And I believe that that was intentional. I believe that Jesus wanted there to be mystery surrounding His second coming. 
And that was intentional. We can say without hesitation that the destruction of the temple that took place in A.D. 70, when Titus and his Roman legions sacked Jerusalem, we can say for sure that's already happened. That's already happened. Jesus said it was going to happen, and it's happened already. And whatever prophecy Jesus spoke pertaining to that has already been fulfilled. We can say that, or can we? Maybe that was a partial fulfillment of a prophecy. And the greater fulfillment still awaits. It's hard to say. There are examples in the Bible of partial fulfillment of prophecies and then some greater fulfillment coming later on. So it's really hard for us to say. I want you to listen carefully. Many Christians tend to equate the rapture of the church with the second coming of Christ. I do most of the time. When I talk about the second coming of Christ, normally I'm thinking about the rapture. Most of us tend to equate those two great events as one. There are certainly, certainly several similarities between the two events, and therefore it can be difficult and confusing at times to discern between the two of them. And yet Scripture seems to tell us that there will be two different or separate events. Yet I must confess to you that sometimes I have difficulty telling the difference between the two. Most conservative theologians believe that the rapture of the church will be God's way of delivering His people from the great tribulation. God's way of taking His people out of that very terrible situation. And that Christ's second coming will take place afterward and bring to an end those terrible days of tribulation. They are all end days events. So this morning as I'm sharing this message with some hesitancy with you, what I want to do is use the word second. S-E-C-O-N-D. The word second for the second coming. Use the word second as an acrostic where each letter in that word stands for something that pertains to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with the first letter. The letter S, it refers to suddenness. Suddenness. Matthew chapter 24 verse 27 says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Lightning strikes suddenly and unexpectedly. You see, the speed of light is far faster than the speed of sound. And so you see the flash of the lightning long before you hear the thunderclap behind it. That being the case, Jesus says His second coming would come as suddenly and unexpectedly as lightning. In Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus said, But about that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. We looked at this passage last week. I shared with you that it is strange to me how some people seem to think they know what Jesus said He didn't know. I shared with you last Sunday for just a moment about the great disappointment. I'll give you a little bit more detail on that this morning. It's kind of embarrassing that the great disappointment was caused by a Baptist preacher. The great disappointment was caused by a Baptist preacher. His name was William Miller. He was studying the 8th chapter of the book of Daniel. And he was creating a, a large chart, prophetic chart to go along with it. And that led him to believe that Christ would return on October 22, 1844. And on that day, the Millerites, as they were called, all dressed up in white robes and climbed up high in trees in order to be closer to the Lord when He returns. And as you probably know, that event did not happen that day. And that's as funny as it's going to get, folks. You might laugh. <laughs> that event did not happen on that day. And of course, 
That day when came and went, and the Millerites dubbed that day the Great Disappointment. Once again, isn't it strange that people think that they know, even preachers think they know what Jesus said He did not know. By the way, the moment someone predicts a certain date as to be the date that Jesus Christ is going to return, that guarantees that will not be the day that Jesus Christ returns. Why is that true? Because Jesus said nobody knows. So if you guess at it, you're going to get it wrong. Jesus said don't guess. Because you'll make sure that's not the date I come back if you guess at it. Don't think you know because nobody knows except the Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 24 verse 43 says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Like the rapture itself, the second coming of Christ will come with suddenness. And then there's the second letter, the letter E. E stands for evil. E stands for evil. The Bible teaches us that the days prior to Christ's second coming shall be filled with evil. Look with me, if you will, at verses 10 through 13 of Matthew 24. Jesus said, At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end shall be saved. Those verses are talking about the evil of apostasy by professing Christians within the church. Think about it, dear friend. If the rapture takes place before the second coming, then true believers will all be lifted from the earth. They won't be here anymore. Think about the condition of the church at that moment. The church will be filled with people who were apostates, who had turned their backs on Christ, who didn't truly love Him, and maybe they'll get a second chance now, but it's going to be really hard. As a matter of fact, I like to say that it will be filled with the backslidden who had slid so far back that Christ did not even recognize them when He came back. They won't even be recognizable as Christians. They'll be here. Most theologians say that after the rapture of the church will come the great tribulation. They'll be here to survive through the tribulation. And they'll have another chance to give their hearts to Christ. Though God will probably be working mostly with Israel. And the tribulation will be the time of Jacob's trouble, as Jeremiah tells us. The Scripture basically says they'll still have another chance. The Bible tells us that at the end of the the tribulation, at the second coming of Christ, there'll still be a group of believers that'll be snatched up and will be with the Lord again. So it's important for us to understand that concept. That time it will be possible for people to repent. I believe it will. I believe it will. It will certainly be much harder than it is right now. For today is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't roll the dice. I, uh, I've gotten recently where I roll the dice more than I should. As, as you probably know, I, I have an allergy called alpha-gal. I'm allergic to red meat. Beef, pork, deer, bear, elk, squirrels, wabbits. The whole thing, you know. Allergic to it all. But about twice a week now, I go to McDonald's. You know what I have? I have a Big Mac. It's not because I like the beef so much. Let's be honest, there ain't much beef there. I don't, you know, but I, that's why I know it's probably not going to give me a reaction. But I roll the dice because I get them to make that Big Mac with extra sauce, extra pickles, extra onions. Cost about 50 cents more, okay? But you get it made that way, and it's really, really good. And I roll the dice about twice a week thinking there ain't enough beef in a Big Mac to give me an allergy reaction. And I really shouldn't do that, but I do. But I don't roll the dice on much of anything else. 
Because I know what it's like to have a reaction. Dear friend, don't roll the dice on your soul. Don't take a chance for all eternity with your soul. It's not worth it. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. There is nothing that stands between Christ and coming back for right now and Christ coming back for His church. Jesus Christ could come back for us at any moment. There's nothing else that needs to be fulfilled. And that being the case, we need to make sure that we're ready to go. Before the coming of Christ, there will be more evil in the church, but there will also be more evil in the world. Look with me, if you will, at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. But mark this, Paul writes, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, hath nothing to do with such people. The second coming of Christ will be marked by tremendous evil, an increase in evil in both the church and the world. Then thirdly, the third letter is C. It stands for conditions. Conditions. Jesus shared with His disciples a wide array of conditions that would precede the second coming into this world. From Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 9, it says the following. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. And when you will be ha- then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Jesus speaks of national and international conflicts as signs of the end of the earth. He also speaks of the increase in famines, natural disasters such as earthquakes as signs of His coming. And He tells us that His followers will be persecuted and hated by non-Christians. Isn't it amazing that in my lifetime, Christians have gone from being the respected pillars of Western culture to the mocked and ridiculed laughingstock of television and media. In liberal America today, we are the only group of people that it is both fair and fashionable to discriminate against. Jesus said it would be that way. Jesus said it would be this way. And you know what? It's going to get worse before it gets better. I hate to tell you that, but that's what the Bible says. It's going to get worse before it gets better. We might as well get used to it. Verses 14 through 22 give us other verses that we need to consider. If you look at verse 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We got work to do. There's still several thousand people groups that have not heard the gospel. We've still got a lot of work to do in sharing the gospel with the whole world. Verse 15, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of the house go down or take anything out of the house. Jesus is speaking of something that Daniel spoke of. Remember what I told you about a few minutes ago? Partially fulfilled prophecy and then fully fulfilled prophecy. This is one of those. That verse about the abomination of desolation was partially fulfilled. 
when Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian ruler, went into the temple in Jerusalem and burned pig on the altar. You know how mad that made the Jewish people? Made them mad enough to rebel against the Syrians and they actually won the battles, won their freedom. That was the partial fulfillment of this verse. But yet in the future there is another character, perhaps the Antichrist, that will go into the temple and he will once again desecrate the temple of God. And that scripture has not been fully fulfilled yet. But it is coming. Those verses testify to us the difference in conditions between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. The rapture of the church will be a joyful event of God taking His people home with Him to glory. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 celebrates the fact that when we are snatched up, so shall we ever be with the Lord. But the conditions surrounding the second coming are communicated in far more ominous terms. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes on earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. That is definitely a second coming Scripture. Listen to the words, if you will, of Matthew chapter 28 verses 29 through 31 that say the following, Immediately after the distress of those days, by the way, the word distress is exactly the same Greek word that is used for the great tribulation. Exactly the same word. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. The Greek word, of course, that's used there is the word for tribulation. Verse 22 tells us that times will be so bad that if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive them. Verse 30 tells us that all the peoples of earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a very different reaction than the joy believers will experience in the rapture. The May 1984 edition of National Geographic magazine shows through some color photos and drawings the swift and terrible destruction that wiped out the Roman cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum in A.D. 79. The explosion of Mount Vesuvius killed 2,000 people while they were in their routine. Men and women were at the marketplace. The rich were in their luxurious baths. The slaves were at toil. They died amid volcanic ash and superheated gases. Each family lost many members. Even pets suffered the same quick and final fate. It takes little imagination to picture the panic of that terrible day. But the saddest part is that those people did not have to die. For scientists today confirm what ancient Roman writers recorded. There were weeks of rumblings and shakings for that volcano before it ever exploded. There was even an ominous plume of smoke clearly visible from the top of that volcano for days before it erupted. If only they had been able to read and respond to Vesuvius' warnings. There are now and will continue to be similar rumblings in our world that correspond to Jesus' warning about His second coming in the end of the world. And people must heed these warnings. So those are some of the conditions surrounding Christ's second coming. Then fourthly, there's the letter O. It stands for obvious. The second coming of Christ will be obvious. It's told to us that it's like the lightning that begins in the west and flashes, or east rather, and flashes even unto the west. If you watched the lightning last night, you kind of understood that. 
as it flashed from one part of the sky to the other. Jesus' coming will be obvious according to Matthew 24, 23 through 27. And then the fifth letter is the letter N. It stands for non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. When I say that the second coming of Christ is non-negotiable, I'm talking about the fact that it is one of the five fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Those five fundamental truths of the Christian faith are the minimal beliefs without which Christianity would no longer be Christianity. In other words, each of those five truths is vital. It's essential. It's fundamental to what we believe as Christians. And those five fundamentals are the virgin conception of Christ, number one. The sinless life of Christ, number two. The atoning death of Christ, number three. The bodily resurrection of Christ, number four. And the visible second coming of Christ, number five. For the last 2,000 years, the church has believed that Jesus Christ is going to return. Just as He came the first time, they believed He's going to come again. And whether we see the second coming as two separate events or just one great event, we understand that without Christ's second coming, there can be no judgment day when good will conquer evil. Without Christ's second coming, there can be no resurrection of the dead. Without Christ's second coming, there can be no snatching up of God's people to glory. Hebrews chapter 9 makes a clear distinction between the first coming, what we call the incarnation, and the second coming of Christ. Verse 28 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, John writes, To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Jesus is not the one who is to be, because He has always been. But He is the one who is to come and take His people home. In Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 20, the ascended Christ says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. So be it. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming again. And He's coming again soon. So the second coming is non-negotiable in terms of the truth of our faith. Then lastly, the last letter is the letter D. And the letter D stands for diligence. For diligence. As we watch for Christ's return, there must first be diligence in the way that we live. There must first be diligence in the way that we live. We looked last week at a scripture from Titus chapter 2 that I've kind of uh, grown to reappreciate. Not the first time, of course, I've read it, but grown to reappreciate it, especially as it relates to our world and our lives right now. Paul wrote, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. It is important that we recognize we need to be diligent in the way that we live. We need to be living for Christ. We need to be good witnesses of His power, His righteousness, His goodness in our lives. But we also must be diligent in the way that we watch. Back in Matthew chapter 24, the last section of this chapter, beginning with verse 42, Jesus said, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. 
But understand this, that if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Jesus told us not only to wait for him, but also to watch for him. Is there a difference? Is there a difference for him between placidly waiting for the Lord's return and actively watching for the Lord's return? Diligently watching for the Lord's return. I believe there is. There's a story that illustrates that difference from an old Scottish fishing village. After days at sea, the skipper of a fishing boat was bringing his craft back to shore. As the boat neared the shore, the men gazed eagerly toward the dock where their loved ones, many of them, were standing and waiting. The skipper, looking through his glass, identified some of the women, some of the wives, saying, I see Bill's Mary, and there's Tom's Margaret, and there's David's Ann. One man was very anxious because his wife was not there. He left the boat with a heavy heart, and he pressed his steps up the hill to his home where he saw a light in his cottage. As he opened the door, his wife ran to meet him, saying, I've been waiting for you. But with a hurt heart and a proper rebuke, he replied, but the other men's wives were watching for them. Is there a difference between waiting and watching? Yes, there is. Waiting is passive. Watching is active. We must be diligent enough to be actively watching for the return of Christ. And as we do so, that will help us live more Christ-like lives until He comes back. Dear friend, are you diligently watching for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time that You've given us. We pray, Lord, that You would help us now to make the decisions that would please You. We know, Lord, we haven't always made such decisions. But we ask that You help us make such a decision today. If there's anyone here who's never asked Jesus to become their Savior, our prayer, Lord, is that they will in these few moments. May Your Spirit work in hearts in this building. And may, Father, may lives become more Christ-like today as a result. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.